This episode of The Suzanne Venker Show is brought to you by Hair Saloon for Men. Hair Saloon isn't just a place to get a haircut. It's an honorable rebellion against the feminization of the American male. Men and women are different, and that's a good thing. So get out of your wife's salon and head on over to Hair Saloon, where the TVs are always tuned into sports and never to Oprah. They have 18 locations in St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Boston, and Houston. Book online or through their mobile app. Again, that's hairsaloon.com. Good afternoon and welcome to another edition of the Suzanne Venker Show, where we tell truths the culture won't. To hear the elites in our universities and in the media talk about men and women today, you'd think the sexes are interchangeable. In the 21st centuries, equality has come to mean sameness, but nothing could be further from the truth. As human beings, we've inherited certain predispositions from our evolutionary past. Anyone who argues that we're born with no predispositions whatsoever and that men and women would act exactly the same if society didn't teach them to act differently is ignoring a mountain of evidence from the major scientific disciplines. The idea that sex differences are socially constructed may be the politically correct view, but it is based on ideology and wishful thinking rather than on empirical evidence. Biological and cultural studies show very clearly that biology matters. My guest today is John Townsend, an expert on the evolutionary roots of sex differences. John is a professor of anthropology at Syracuse University and has authored countless articles, as well as the book, What Women Want, What Men Want. We'll talk with John today about the vast differences between women and men and why understanding and accepting these differences is the key to a healthy, lasting relationship. John Townsend, welcome to the show. Thanks for inviting me. Thanks for being here. I'm so excited. I'd like to begin by telling everyone that this episode is a little different than the others because John is the co-author of my new book, Women Who Win at Love, which will hit the shelves in just a few weeks, although it's available now for pre-order on Amazon. John and I are going to be talking today about the book's content, so if you've stumbled onto this podcast, you're going to get a great preview of what's in that upcoming book. So let's begin, John, with our connection to one another. I think we found each other this way. I had read your book, What Women Want, What Men Want, some years ago as research for one of my earlier books. And then I, I think I emailed you to ask you a question, and we emailed a bit, and then at some point you got with me to find out whether I wanted to collaborate on a book, which <laughs> I have to say that seems eons ago, and I can't believe it's about to hit the market in just a few weeks. It's just the longest process publishing, isn't it? Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. Uh, who knew, right? Uh, yeah, I mean... It really does feel like the longest one I've ever been working on, although I don't even know if that's true. But at any rate, so in terms of your book, um, let's focus on that first. What Women Want, What Men Want. You had argued in that book and gave evidence for the fact that there are deep-seated desires inherited from our evolutionary past that guide our actions. And you address the real reasons in that book behind men's and women's different sexual psychologies and shed light on, among other things, what men and women look for in a mate. And you have this fascinating series of experiments where men and women were asked to indicate their preferences for potential mates, and it was called the costume experiment. Can you tell people about that costume experiment? Yeah, actually, that's probably my most famous article. And in fact, it got written up in popular media such as GQ and Cosmo, a bunch of other places. Uh, I had figured out that 
costume being, of course, a symbol of status made a huge difference in terms of the way women perceive men. And if, if he, that guy's well-dressed and well-groomed and in a spancy car, then he could be attractive. And if, if all of those things are negative, uh, he looks like a loser and out of work and whatever, then he is not attractive. So I, I thought, wouldn't it be great to get something that signals like low status, some costume, and uh, and then, you know, have like a designer blazer or whatever for the high-status costume, and then something that's uh, pinpoint Oxford shirt for, for medium status, more neutral, and see if, if this actually will emerge in an experiment. And it did. Uh, you could take that, the, uh, and we had all the models pre-rated for attractiveness by a, another audience, and so we knew, like, okay, this is the way, this is their level of attractiveness. And we took this guy that, that was known as being very cute, very handsome, whatever, and we put him in a Burger King outfit. And uh, and in the first experiment, we didn't say anything about it. We said, oh, uh, rate this guy's attractiveness. Would you go out on a date with him? Would you, like, uh, sleep with him, marry him, whatever? We had five different stages of relationship. And... And, and uh, the, the female models, you know, were in a nice designer dress for high status and, and, and uh, low status, too. They wore the Burger King outfit. And and we got a huge difference. Like, if you change the costume and therefore the status, then female respondents, the female participants in the experiment, uh, their ratings of attractiveness were significantly altered. They, and, and this is unconscious if you ask them, like, oh, well, you know, why? They just, oh, well, it's just, this is my impression. You know, this guy is, is hot and this guy isn't. So the follow-up, the sequel was, we added descriptions, like for the Burger King. We said, oh, this guy is, is training to be a waiter, and when he finishes, he's going to make 30000 a year. And, and for the, the guy with the blazer and the Rolex watch, he said, oh, he's doing his residency in medicine. And when he finishes, his starting salary will be 200000 a year. And so once we added to the costumes uh, these status descriptions, then the effect was even greater. That, that status, the status manipulation had a huge effect on women's assessments of male attractiveness, but no effect on men's assessments of female attractiveness. And so some people might say, oh, well, but, you know, th those were just like a, a limited sample and Burger King out there, whatever. Uh, a, a lot of other people, including Michael Dunn and, and, uh, at the University of Cardiff in, in uh, Great Britain, uh, had uh, modeled experiments based upon my original work and used, like, status cars or, or apartments or whatever, all kinds of other Stimuli, and they found the same thing that that women are attracted, and, and uh, oh yeah, like Sadala and Deb Kenrick's uh, original work on dominance. The guys that better appear successful and competitive are rated as more attractive, and guys that appear like kind of insecure and looking at the floor, and you know maybe not 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 very competitive, and lets other people win and whatever. They're women won't go out with them. So 
this idea that men are threatened by highly successful women or whatever, it's like there's no evidence they're threatened. They, it just doesn't affect their assessments of female attractiveness. If she's been super good looking has a great body, men are still attracted to her. You know, she could have five degrees or whatever. And so but that's basically a feminist myth that men are, men are just, oh, shaking in their boots with fear because this woman has status. They go like, maybe she should lose 30 pounds because that's the way, that's the reason that men are not yeah. dating her. It's because they don't find her physically attractive. So, I, you know, I, I can imagine a lot of people listening to this and saying, you know, I don't even need research to, to I mean, that's great because I can see in my dealings with women and or men that um, that this is true. I mean, you, you know, you just, I mean, you can take a random sample just from your own life and see the truth of this. So it's really like common sense and experience getting a stamp of, you know, scientific approval, if you will, which is always helpful. Um, so I, I, I can imagine people just not arguing with that in theory. I think where one of the things that I loved about your book was that you are willing to just put on the table what biological needs, desires, wants, propensities are to hell with the politics of it. And of course, that's what I'm all about, which is how you and I ended up getting together for this new book. But we need to take a quick sponsor break and we'll come right back where we left off. Thanks, Elliot. Do you ever wonder what happened to courtship and find yourself longing to go out on a real date? Do you ask yourself why some marriages last and others fall apart? Is your marriage struggling despite your best efforts to keep it together? Women who win at love don't have a gift you don't have. What makes them unique is that they aren't at war with the men in their lives. Rather than take a competitive approach to relationships, as the culture teaches, they accept that men are men and that women are women. And that makes all the difference. Whether you're single and mapping out your life, or you're divorced or unhappily married, women who win at love will permanently alter the way you view men in marriage. You will learn the eight dating rules that lead to marriage, why super successful women struggle in love, what men want and what women want, hint, they're not the same, why love alone is not a reason to get married, how to avoid the green grass syndrome, and why acting like a man lands women in a ditch. Women Who Win at Love is an in-depth examination of modern dating and marriage and a wake-up call for women at every stage of life. So go to Amazon.com and type in Women Who Win at Love and get ready for your life to change. Welcome back to The Suzanne Venker Show. You can find out more at SuzanneVenker.com. But what was the reaction at the time when you wrote this book from other academics with respect to that, the fact that it wasn't politically correct? Well, I, you know, uh, I don't want to confuse this idea of like, you know, oh, we don't, we don't believe men and women are equal. We, we, and you just said it. We don't believe that they're the same. Right. Of course they should have equal political rights and economic opportunities and all that. So we're talking about like, are they the same or do, are there some, some basic differences that tend to show up in every society? Right. And indeed, there are. And the biggest differences, they're minimal in, in terms of intellectual faculties and all of that. But the biggest difference is in, in sexuality and sexual psychology. And, and that's for the very simple reason that women get pregnant. So men have a different sex drive. So saying this, getting back to your question, Saying this 
you know, the politically correct view on most campuses is uh, that all of these differences between the sexes, uh, except for anatomy, maybe, but, but all these behavioral differences are, are due to society. And there, there's no biological predisposition at all involved. And so anybody who says anything different is a heretic. And so, yeah, I mean, I don't discuss my work with most academics. Mind you, there's the whole field of evolutionary psychology, you know, and they have their own conferences and so forth. And they're, you're safe because everybody, you know, uh, has the same point of view. But a lot of departments, you know, maybe not physics, but in chemistry, but like the social, so-called social sciences and humanities have been taken over by the postmodernists on most campuses. Oh, no question. And, and so anybody, anybody who uh, dares to, to, to contradict that view can be really persecuted and, and possibly fired. No question. I mean, that's really, that's exactly what's happened with Jordan Peterson and his whole rise. That's how it started, is that he is not like, he, you know, he wouldn't toe the line, uh, which, which you don't either, I should say. And there's fewer of you in academia than ever. It's funny because, the, <laughs> I mean, usually when people think of academia, we think of research. We think of science. We're supposed to anyway. But as you pointed out, it's been taken over by ideology. And so research like this, and I want to get to this most recent one that we were talking about, um, if just it gets completely ignored or thrown under the bus because they're, I mean, that's just so funny to me that you can be in the world of education and just dismissive of these studies. So this recent one that you sent me, scarcity, sex, and spending, how does this one that came out in j- just this summer relate to what we were just talking about with um, high status or mate, mate preferences, let's put it that way? Yeah, I'm, I was gratified to see that, I, I, like most uh, academics, belong to ResearchGate, so we're notified, you know, when anybody reads our stuff or, or cites it or whatever, and so then I got this email or this notification that someone had cited my work, and it was in a business journal, of all things, and so it said, would you like to, you know, get the full text, and so I began communicating with Hannah Bradshaw, who's the lead author on this, and it's not that they have data on, on actual recessions, because that would be that'd be kind of difficult, but they simulated, they say, oh, you know, if, if there's a recession and, you know, like money's tied and all that, what would you prefer? And this is an accepted technique in psychological research, and that's right. Whenever, when money was going to be tight, women expressed a stronger preference for highly successful men who owned you know, status objects like a townhouse in New York or a snazzy car or whatever. And men in hard times, in recession, whatever, they expressed a stronger preference for having these things, for making enough money to have these things, because they knew it would be necessary for them to hook up with attractive women. One of the things that interests me about everything that we've been talking about in terms of mate preferences is where it comes time to choosing a partner for marriage. And in your original book, you wrote, professional women prefer to date and marry men whose incomes and job status are equal or greater to theirs in status, which, of course, is the definition of hypergony. But the reason, one of the 
themes of our book that's coming out in a few weeks, Women Who Win at Love, is that we point out that this is going to create a major quandary for men and women today. Because if women are becoming the dominant sex, as they are, and most women want to marry dominant men, well, now what? What are we going to do? Because this so-called rise in women over the last 40 years is supposed to have been a win-win. And um, perhaps in some areas it has, certainly professionally. But what does this mean for their love life? So let's unpack this a little bit because this is really – this is really the meat of it. You know, this is the topical issue that we're dealing with today in America. And this, what, what we're pointing out about hypergamy is still just as real today as it was back in the day. And so there's a real disconnect when you teach women and encourage them to focus exclusively on education career and to postpone marriage as long as possible. But you're going to come up against a problem when you're in your 30s and you're looking for a husband. And let's talk about why that is. Yeah, I, one of my samples uh, consisted of 50 medical students, uh, about equally split male and female, and and the women, these are smart women, you know, you, you can't be like a doofus and, and get into medical school, so they, a lot of them were very aware uh, of, of the dilemma they faced, namely that as their status went up, and, of course, it was going to go up a lot. They knew that already as second-year medical students. They knew that they were going to make a ton of money and have a list of power and prestige, you know, in American society. And they knew that they did not want to date down. They were already aware of that, that, you know, a, a guy that they might have dated when they were back in college now would be, I mean, if he's super cute and everything, they might go out with him. They might even end up in bed with him for a fun roll in the hay but they're not going to marry him if, if his status is significantly lower than theirs. And and so they're not stupid. You know, I said, well, that, that would mean that the pool of potentially acceptable partners is shrinking as your status goes up. Your pool of suitable partners is, is shrinking. And they said, yes. And, and <laughs> some of them said, yeah, and, and I'm really worried about it. So... You know, uh, what's what's the solution? Well, you know, most people end up getting married, and and just like men, they all may want you know to to date you know women that look like Jennifer Lawrence or like some famous universe or whatever. Well, but they don't, they don't, they're not able to, and they end up marrying you know uh, somebody that's that's in a sense a compromise. So everybody has to kind of scale down from their fantasy. Mm-hmm. And, and today, a lot of women uh, are going to have some guy that is is more equal in earning power. And that's right. Then the woman, if that's true, then the woman is going to be more likely to insist on his sharing all of the domestic care, child care and everything. And what, I, what I found is, like, you know, women are not stupid. They're not necessarily ideologues like here these women are going to make a ton of money, and and do they want that a husband who does a bunch of of low rent tasks, of, of minimum wage tasks, they want some guy that that provides you know an advantage even above their own salary. So in fact, they all just said, "Well, we could just hire help. You know, we'll have we'll we'll both be doctors, and we can just hire you know nanny, whatever. We can hire women." whatever we, we need, you know? So this idea of like, oh, the man has to do 50-50, blah, 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 that's really a very middle-class 
notion that that's that 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 it, it's suitable for people such as female academics that don't make that much money compared to successful doctors and lawyers, and that they can get men who are academics that also, you know, just make a middle class salary. They use the two salaries. That's fine. And academics have all this time, three months yeah. of vacation in mm-hmm. the summer and, and a month of Christmas, and they're not working 70 to 90 hour weeks like people trying to become partners in law firms. So that, you know, this the idea that a lot of these feminists, I think they do women a, a, a real disservice because they have this one-size-fits-all model. Like, you have to be like like me, you know, and have right. to be on... You know, and, and I go, that can work under certain situations, but most people don't have jobs like that. Exactly. Exactly. That's and, and, and it's not it's not appropriate for a lot of women. No, and there's and I'm you know, we should be much more concerned about the average woman or the majority, not the not the I mean, the few who are in that category of what you're talking about with extremely high earners, you know, they're all they're going to be fine. You know, they're going to be fine. It's the mess. They hire people to take care of their lawns and their children. Yeah, precisely. But if you send them, it's exactly like you just said. If you send that message like that should be the norm. We have millions of middle class men and women trying to live up to that ideal and they're failing. And that's why there's so much strife between women and men. So much, um, you know, even divorce today is different from divorce back in the day. The reasons people are divorcing. This is it's straining marriage in a way that has really never been done before. And it's because of this message that this is how it should be done. I mean, if it's one thing if you wanted to make that argument and say, okay, well, this is going to work for a very small segment of the population, but it's not going to work for the masses. If they were just honest about it, it would be fine. But any time they come up with an idea, it has to like work for the masses. And then, of course, it doesn't. And then the masses are stuck with, well, what now? You told me to do it this way. So, well, and it's like, yeah, like, it, you may recall uh, that it, it, it's actually a study by a friend of mine that lived in this this rooming house kind of, you know, apartment complex with, with a bunch of, of, of highly committed, politically involved feminists in California. And he ends up being friends with them, and they have all these little chats talking about men. And every one of them had become sick and tired of these super feminist guys that they've been dating and sleeping with and so forth. And, and and we're kind of like embarrassed. You know, sometimes I wish I met a real macho guy, you know, that wasn't always waiting for me to tell him what to do. And, you know, they they, they use words referring to these, you know, men uh, that they used to like, right, because they respected their feminism and all that. They use words like puny to, to refer to these men. And I go like, no, they don't want some guy that knocks them around or whatever. They want somebody they respect. So, let, John, let's talk about the difference then. What you're talking about is the difference between domination and dominance. And we need to talk about this because when you and I first got yeah. together, we knew that this was going to be the biggest – it's important to make this distinction with our book about what dominance really means and is and how it differs from domineering. So can you explain that, please? Yeah, uh, like when women – you know, some of these, these uh, critics say, you know, uh, oh, men are, are threatened by – aggressive, assertive, successful women, and I said, nobody likes a domineering person. You know, males or females are turned off by that. Right. Right. But what women are attracted to is a man, he doesn't have to act domineering because he's just cool. Yeah, 
He doesn't have to tell you how great he is because you already know. Because he his his prowess is known because he's Brad Pitt or whatever, you know. He's like he's cool and everybody knows he's cool. Right? And, and you mean he, confident is really what you're talking about, is a confidence. Confidence. Actually yeah. uh yeah. founding partner of a successful media law firm in New York City said that. He said I think the most important thing, John, is confidence. And 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 I said, Well, yes, but you have to have the goodies on which to base the confidence. That they say you really are confident and blah blah, but but in fact you, you're, you're unemployed or whatever. And he says, "Oh well, oh yes, that's true." I say, "Yes, you need something to be confident about." And and women are clever. They they that's some true. of them get bamboozled by guys, but you know very often they'll find out this guy's a pretender. This guy, you know, yeah, has like like a, 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 a key fob, you know, for a Porsche, but in fact drives a Ford Focus. I mean, they'll get behind this, these masks that men put, put on, you know, and try to seduce them. And, like, guys that, guys that are, are, are truly secure in themselves, right, they don't have to dominate anybody. No, right. And women pick up on that. Absolutely. And find it attractive. Definitely. Now, I want to give you, I'm thinking of something from our book, in the section about female breadwinners. And we used an example of a Susan Foray, who was a 40-year-old divorced actuary. Uh, and, and she wrote in the New York Times <laughs> about a man she was dating who insisted on being in charge of the money because he's a man. And this was very different, she said, than her prior, not only her ex-husband, but her previous boyfriends, who had all been proud feminists in an attempt to show their respect for her. So they were constantly deferring to her all the time and giving her all the power and giving her the uh, – basically relying on her to make all the decisions. So when this guy comes along who she called traditional man, this traditional man who was very confident and said he's going to take care of things, um, she found it extremely alluring and sexy and that it blew her away. She just – that was that comparison of what she'd had to this thing that was more unusual today before she realized that her whole body – you know you know her physical just her body was responsive to that and it was so fascinating because that's basically what you're talking about is this this man wasn't dominating her he was simply taking charge of the situation and so she didn't have to do that because that's so much about what's happening in modern relationships where men are deferring too much to women thinking that they're being respectful because they were taught to do this that this is what equality means but in fact women are bearing the load now and they're just looking for a man to be strong and make the decisions and that's dominance. I mean, that's strength. That's, you know. That's right. But but the thing is, because in many cases the women are making as much or more than the guys, you know, it's hard for him to, you know, yep. a lot of women would say like, oh, well, you know, my husband handles the financial affairs of the family because, in fact, he's a super successful investment banker. He's making from thirty million a year. So, gee, yeah, I let him handle our our <laughs> stock portfolio or whatever, right? It, I mean, and and but in a lot of cases, these women they don't want to cede all this power and everything because they don't have a man that offers sufficiently substantial advantage, right? A socioeconomic advantage. I mean, and it's not the guy's fault; it's not the women's fault. I mean, you know, with modern technology, like, we don't need, 
we don't need to have the, the, the domestic division of labor the way we did a hundred years ago. You know, so it's it's really true. Well, there's I no mean, guys. Guys on on the average, the more women you know become financially independent, the average guy has less to offer them. That's just a fact. Yeah, that's just a fact. No question about it. I'm going to push back on you a little bit there and say that I, I wouldn't say that it's nobody's fault. I, I completely understand your point about what's changed technologically and um, how that's made the work in the home very different, unquestionably. But um, but but you have to remember, you know, you know as well as I do that women are the ones who told men that they don't need them, and that and men heard that, and so that has a lot to do with why they've pulled back professionally. It's there's more than one reason. It's not just technology or just jobs going overseas or what have you. It's also just a general malaise of men to feel like they're going to bring anything to the table because women can take care of themselves today. So when you do have that shift in economic power, if you will, it really changes the entire dance. And you have to be very careful about how you're going to manage that if you want to find, you know, lasting love, essentially. Yeah, I mean, and, and of course, we're talking, we're talking about generalities. I mean, there yes. are still people, many, many different uh, smaller groups, a lot of them religious, but not all of them, you know, that then support the the old traditional division of labor, like while well, children are small, you know, the woman should not work full time, and blah blah blah. You know, whether they're Christians or Orthodox Jews or whatever, there are plenty of of, of uh, you know homeschoolers, whatever, that still do this, and 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 I could see that you know when I'm doing my research and talking to different kinds of people, that you know a woman who's who's not doing the career you know, emphasizing the career over everything, and that has decided to stay home with her children, it's better if she has a support network, that she's not having to go to, you know, parties and, and you know, feel embarrassed. And, oh, what do you do? Oh, well, I'm just a mother, you know? I mean, women would complain to me about that. Like, mm-hmm. like you feel like you've got to, you know, apologize. Oh, no Like, question. for staying home with your kids, because it's not cool, no. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and I'm saying, like, Look, we all need social approval that women who are doing a more traditional, you know, mode, uh, it's helpful. I'm not saying they should just go out and pretend to be religious or whatever, but if they can find a group mm-hmm. with whom they can relate and that is supportive, they're, they're going to have a, a lot easier time, and they're going to feel no better about what they're doing. No question. Um, okay, now I want to switch gears while we're before we close out here um, about... So at the at the end of our book, we have um, conclusion, and we have four final thoughts there, two of which um, I want you to speak to, okay? The first one says, except this is, now this is for, this is basically getting back to sex differences in a marriage, which we didn't get too, too much into, we were talking about more like mate selection, but when you're talking about marriage and how you can... Um, use the knowledge of sex differences to work for you instead of against you. One of the things that we say is to accept your own faults, accept that your own faults, along with some of your partners, are permanent. <laughs> and this could be hard to accept. <laughs> could you kind of elaborate a little bit on what we mean by that? What no, you learn? Like, what you learn from your um, uh, research? And what, I read it. I read it. Most people are, are going to justify their past actions. They don't want to admit that they screwed up, especially, you know, divorce when when children were involved. 
to admit, like, you know what, I didn't have to get a, a divorce. I, I, I did it thinking I, I would do so much better on the market, and now, and, and that didn't happen. But there were a few people that I interviewed that, that said that, that women, like, you know, my husband really wasn't a bad guy. I was just looking for something more, right? Mm-hmm. And we have all that freedom now, you know? Uh, and and it admitted, like, yeah, things on the, on the marriage market weren't so great. You know, they had two or three kids, it's like, and they're they're looking for Mr. Right, and they still have their high socioeconomic standards, right? So, so accepting accepting your own opportunities, like or lack thereof, you know, like could I really do better? And sometimes you need you need professional advice. I mean, a lot of people profit from counseling. You know, I I refer people to to counselors about their teenage kids, about their marriage, whatever. And, and it doesn't always work out ideally, but it's better than not having any any objective input. You know, you're less likely to get into nasty arguments and, and say hurtful things. So people accepting that you both should, you you both have have your own opinions and and you don't you know, you don't want people walking over you and so forth, and that some things are not going to change. You know, and, and which should you accept and which should you maybe try to work on? Well, that's where I think, you know, professional help is, is, is indicated. That, Definitely. You know, you can say like, oh, well, I guess I just have to accept so-and-so. Well, this woman should not accept being, you know, brutalized no. by her alcoholic husband. Right. So, you know, that's something that you need intervention, right? Yep. So we can all, we can all use some objective input and... And making a marriage work today is like, it's a lot of work because there are a lot of forces that are divisive. No question about it. Okay, and the second one is to recognize each other's sexual and emotional needs and to build them into the way you live. And this can be tricky and hard because, again, when we didn't get into this uh, too much, but the difference between men's and women's sexual needs um, and how that causes great or can cause great conflict uh, in husbands and wives. And if you recognize, our point there is to say, look, you're, you're a woman, this is how it works, This is he's a man, this is how it works for him, and they just don't match. But if you respect that those needs are different from yours and respond accordingly, you're just much better off. Yeah, and I know, I know, like a lot of, of, of contemporary women, especially the ones that have taken, you know, feminist-oriented courses, you say, oh, well, if I don't feel like having sex, I, I, I'm not going to have sex, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like, he can go fish, you know, like he can masturbate, whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not going to do anything I don't feel like doing. And, and I say, well, that's right. You shouldn't, you shouldn't just force yourself to have sex with your husband just because he wants it and everything. But if you look at all the things that he's doing that he doesn't particularly want to do, but that he does to keep you happy and to, you know, be a good father and a husband and all that, I mean, any kind of relationship, even a, even a business contract, it involves give and take. It, in, it involves compromise. You know, like oh, I'll stroke your back here and you stroke my back there. I mean, so your your notion of like a lot of married women that that they they know that that they'll have more peace at home and a, and a more loving, warm relationship and get more from their husbands. If, in fact, they 
occasionally had sex with them when eh, maybe they're not in the mood at first, but they, they, they try to get in the mood, right? Yep. But this day, to say something like that is, is just like, uh, you know, yes. Yes, God forbid you do something. Well, it's because all sex that you didn't, per- you as a woman didn't uh, initiate, I guess, could be potential rape. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, gets- but but I can tell you what some of these high-powered women doctors and lawyers that I, that that I interviewed, several of them said, like, I want a guy who knows what he what he's doing in bed, not someone all waiting, always waiting for my cues as to what to do. You know, he should be masterful in bed. Yeah, sure. Go, yeah. Not not like not in the, you know, uh, bondage and or whatever, but just like he should act like he's making love to her like some romantic hero in a romantic novel. <laughs> that's, that's hard and, to keep up with I weekly. Mean, <laughs> I think. You know, romance, it, it hasn't gone out of style. Those things are selling zillions of copies just like they were in the 50s. Yeah. <laughs> Well, precisely. I, I show a picture of Fabio in, in, in my sexual attraction class, and I see this guy was on 80 million book covers or something like that, just some fantastic number, right? This one guy in his face, and here's like the bodice ripper type cover and everything. And I go, and these are still selling millions and millions of copies. I'm going to ask you one last question before we go that I just thought of now. And if you don't have an answer to it, that's fine. I just thought of it. Um, what since you've been teaching this this same class for so many years, have you? Is there any one thing you could point to that's different from the women twenty five years ago, say, to today, in terms of what we're talking about? Is there anything that stands out as, gosh, this part has really changed, or is it just well, consistent? All there's a lot more casual sex on campus yeah. than there used to be. A lot, you know, penetrative. I yeah. mean, that was always yeah. thinking out. I mean, even when I was in high school and college and everything. But but now, uh, these young women having, you know, usually oral sex, but sometimes vaginal intercourse, with guys that they don't even know. It's, but they know that he's in the right fraternity or whatever. There's a lot more of that than there was 20, 30 years ago. No yeah, question and, about and, it. Yeah. And, and, that, have... and that, of course, has, a, you know, a lot of risks. Yeah, a lot. And we talk about this in our book, of course. The, one of the biggest, of course, there's the obvious physical risks, but also the fact that men are predisposed to value casual sex, whereas women don't separate, and so this as easily. So the, this idea that you can quote unquote have sex like a man was, to me, the beginning of the end. I mean, I truly believe that that's when we started to go awry because not understanding those differences between women and men when it comes to sex has been extremely destructive, specifically for women, in my opinion. A lot of these girls come to college and they, you know, they start hooking up because that's the popular, especially if they get into sorority, because that's the popular thing to do and all that. And it takes them, you know, a year, year and a half to figure out that these guys just want to get their rocks off. Mm-hmm. And and so, in fact, there's not going to be a relationship. These guys don't even want to know their name, whatever. They'll chat them up so they can get in their pants, but... But they, 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 you know, and then the girls complain. Like, they're surprised. Like, I saw him on campus the next day, and he acted like he didn't even know who I was. And I'm thinking, like, probably didn't. (laughs) You're anonymous. You're a collection of orifices. Yes. He probably didn't. He probably didn't. And actually, I told a couple of fraternity guys this. 
And, and one of them said, oh, yeah, maybe he would have recognized her if he'd seen the top of her head. That's so sad. I don't even know what to say to that. Well, thank God we have our book coming out that has the eight dating rules, and it talks about exactly what not to do as well as what to do with respect to dating so that women, well, and men, but women specifically, do not fall down this uh, this path that they're being led on. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And, um, Me too. Yeah, and i got to say, you know, i got my complimentary copies. They look great. Yeah, they, don't they? I'm very excited, very pleased. It's a, it's a real classy package, i got to say. I'm so glad that you, you agree. So our listeners know we just we both literally got those this past week in the mail from the publishing company, and after three years, it's, it's a long wait and very exciting when it comes in the mail. So um, I'm so excited. It comes out in a few weeks, and um, I'll be talking with you soon on the publicity circuit. And look forward to cool. it. And I thank you, thank you, thank you for coming on today and talking with us. And, um, yeah, that's about it. Well, uh, this has been a great conversation. And um, if you don't have anything to add, we'll uh, talk soon. Thank you. My guest today was John Townsend, professor of anthropology at Syracuse University and author of What Women Want, What Men Want. Well, that wraps up another edition of The Suzanne Venker Show. If you haven't done so already, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast, and please do take two minutes to give us your review. It really helps. And if you have a question or a comment that you'd like to share with me or our listeners, go to Suzanne at thesuzannevenkershow.com. And don't forget to check out our sponsor, Hair Saloon for Men. They have 18 locations in St. Louis, Pittsburgh, Boston, Houston. Book online or through their mobile app. Again, that's hairsaloon.com. Thanks for listening, everyone. Are you unhappily single? Does your marriage or relationship feel hard? I get a lot of emails from readers who are struggling in their marriage or relationship. Unfortunately, the help an individual or couple needs can rarely be answered in a series of emails. For this reason, I offer relationship coaching for those who are struggling to find love and for couples whose marriage or relationship feels stuck in a negative cycle. Go to SuzanneBanker.com and sign up today for a coaching session with me and learn the tools you need to find love and sustain it. It's so much easier than you think. That's SuzanneBanker.com.